morning to you all. It's a great day to be here. Morning. Morning, Steve. It's a great day to be here. Great day to worship our Lord together as his bride, as his church. Have you ever seen any of those epic fail pictures? You know what I'm talking about? Seen them on the internet. I actually brought some examples this morning. It's an epic fail. How about this one? Ouch. What about this one? That was the goal, but that was the reality. You know, we see things like this and and we laugh because they are funny. And sometimes we have our own epic fail stories. Like, I know someone who tried to jump down a flight of stairs. I won't say who. Furthermore, he did it in a pair of socks instead of shoes, and that just ended all kinds of bad. That was an epic fail as an idea before it was an epic fail as a stunt. But you know, it's not funny when the epic fail is spiritual. To have a spiritual epic fail is to completely miss the gift of salvation that God offers by grace through faith. And tragically, many people have this epic fail and there are many ways to fail to grasp God's gracious salvation and one of those ways we see in our text today, it's called legalism. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it misses the truth. And the problem is it feels so right and it can seem so good, and it can seem the right way. But in reality, legalism is a spiritual epic fail. And let me define this for you. What is legalism? John Piper gives this definition. He says, legalism is the conviction that law-keeping is the grounds of our acceptance by God. Legalism is the conviction that law-keeping, keeping God's law is the grounds of our acceptance by God, that we are accepted because we keep God's laws. That's legalism. It's the idea, if I keep God's laws, and let's broaden that, if I keep God's word, Genesis through Revelation, then he accepts me. It's following that list of do's and don'ts to make God happy with me. That's legalism. And there are three basic kinds of legalism. There's legalism that stems from traditions. There's legalism that comes from our personal preferences. And there's legalism that comes from our personal views when it comes to the gray areas of life. For an example, an example of tradition would be, you know, we only sing hymns here because that's what we've always done. Or an example of personal preferences, I do my devotional time first thing in the morning and that's the way everyone should do it. Or an example of having a personal view on the gray areas of life would be, you know, I believe the Bible teaches that we should all be Republicans. (laughs) Thank you, Steve. These are examples of modern legalistic tendencies, and that's going to be our topic today. Legalism, may I submit to you, is, an, is a spiritual epic fail, and I want to give you three reasons why. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail, number one, because it focuses on external 
behavior. It focuses on external behavior. Join me back at the top of chapter 7. Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now let's go back and and, and let's refresh our memory because this is not the first time that we've encountered Pharisees. Just to remind you, the Pharisees were a member of a religious party that held strictly to the obedience of the law of Moses. They were fearful of breaking the law. So over time, they developed rules or traditions around the law as a type of hedge to protect themselves from breaking the law. And these traditions were passed down orally over time. In fact, Some even believed that the added oral traditions around the law were actually handed down from God to Moses. Some actually believed that, even though they were not written down in the law. Here's an example. In Exodus 20, there's a a refrain from from work on the Sabbath. No working on the Sabbath. We see that in the Ten Commandments. um, Honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. By the time Jesus comes, the Pharisees had created all these traditions about what that meant, such as taking a few grains as you walk along a field is considered work, so you shouldn't do that. Or in Jesus' case, and we've seen this, if you try to heal somebody on the Sabbath, that's a physician's job, that's work, you shouldn't do that. When the law of God never stated those things. So we have the Pharisees here, but remember, we also have the scribes here. And just by way of reminder, the scribes were experts at the law. They were also referred to as lawyers, and they were responsible for teaching the people the scriptures. Now, originally, scribes were good. They came and they taught people God's word, but again, over time, they began to focus more on traditions, more on what other scribes said than on what God's word said. So by the time Jesus comes up, they're really not even teaching God's word. They're teaching some previous scribe's work. Now, Pharisees and scribes are technically two different groups of people, but they can overlap. You can have a scribe who's also a Pharisee, and he's a teacher of the law, but he has a religious bent toward Phariseeism. So in our passage today, we come to our part, this part in our series in Mark, and he doesn't tell us exactly where we are geographically. You get that? A lot of times Mark will open up, then Jesus went here, then Jesus went there. But this, chapter 7, we just kind of dive right into a story. We're not exactly sure where Jesus is, probably in Galilee, but we're not sure. And this is the second time that scribes have come up from Jerusalem. So Jesus' ministry, as we know, it's been spreading. It's all over the place. It's lit a fire under people. People are coming to him from everywhere. Scribes have come to him previously. They come back to him now. Scribes from Jerusalem have come. They're investigating, okay, what is this guy all about? What is his teaching? And it's significant that they come from Jerusalem because the more elite Pharisees and scribes resided in Jerusalem. That's where the temple was. And there were, of course, scribes and Pharisees in the towns of Galilee all over Israel, really. But to have these religious leaders coming up from the capital, you could say, was a big deal. Think of this. 
It would be one thing if an actor from some studio here in central Illinois, I don't know if we have any, but let's just say we do, an actor comes and visits Harvest. It would be quite another thing if an actor from Hollywood came and visited Harvest. Maybe that kind of helps give you a grasp of these, this idea of these scribes coming from Jerusalem. And this is also significant because Jerusalem is where the bulk of the hostility toward Jesus has originated. You may remember in chapter 3, scribes had come from Jerusalem, and what did they do? They accused Jesus of doing his ministry by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's a nice thing to say to somebody. Now, interestingly enough, the fact that they come to Jerusalem is a somewhat of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus himself goes to Jerusalem. But we won't get to that till the fall. So let's stick with our passage today. Look at verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, that word defile in verse 2 is interesting because it means common. It means ordinary. This was a word to contrast what the law refers to as things that are holy. You had things that are common and things that are holy. And that's what this word defiled really means is just things that are common, things that are not set apart for God. In the Old Testament, you had that division. And these things, there are things that were holy that were dedicated to religious use, and then there were things that were just common, things for everyday use. And that's what we have here. They're looking at this situation. They see the disciples are being common They're not raising to the level of purifying themselves. They see the disciples washing their hands, and they have a problem with that. Now, don't get the idea that this is about hygiene. This has nothing to do with hygiene. The Pharisees weren't concerned with cleanliness in the sense of washing away dirt. This had everything to do with religious practice that was based on tradition. Mark actually further explains this. Look at verse 3. He goes into a parenthetical statement, and he says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, Mark adds this statement in here because his original readers were most likely Christians in Rome, most likely Gentiles, and they would have been unfamiliar with Jewish practices. And let me just say, for us 2,000 years later, it's really nice to have those parenthetical statements. I wish we had more of them in the Bible, but that's just something I gotta get over. So Mark, he's expounding here on the Jewish Pharisaical custom of washing, and the Pharisees would wash their hands before they eat, and they would also wash dishes, and they would keep things clean, but like I said, it was not out of hygiene. Okay? They would even come, the text tells us, from the marketplace where they might bump into a Gentile or they might bump into an unclean Jew. So before they even eat, they would come home and wash. That word properly that you see there in verse 3 actually kind of gives us a clue that this is for religious practices. That word properly literally means with the fist. And we're not exactly sure how they washed their hands. But there is one theory based upon a couple things that we know that they would wet their hands or they would wet a fist and then they would grind that into the dry palm and that was washing. So it wasn't lathering up, it wasn't getting in between the fingers, you know, it was just a religious practice. That's all it was. I mean, you stop and think about it. They didn't even know what a germ was back then. Now, before we get too hard on the Pharisees, I want to stop 
And I want to consider where they're coming from. The Pharisees wanted to keep themselves pure in an effort to be able to approach God. See, the Pharisees actually believed that God actually lived in the temple. They believed that the biblical laws provided the necessary procedures for the priests to be able to approach a holy God. So you kept yourself pure in order to approach God. Is that a good desire? Absolutely it is. We maybe not be able to fully appreciate this because for those who have put their faith in Jesus, we know that our sin and our impurity has already been dealt with at the cross. We don't necessarily fear approaching a holy God because we have been made holy by the blood of Christ. But in the Pharisees' mind, see, they remember the stories about Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron who offered unauthorized fire to God in Leviticus chapter 10, and God's holiness broke out and burned them. They remember the story about Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant and God struck him dead. And they want to keep themselves pure to be able to approach this holy God. Now, I'm not making excuses for the Pharisees. But just for a second, let's try to remember where they're coming from. They want to be pure so they can approach God. And beyond that, they want the entire nation to be pure. And those aren't bad motives. But over time, that good motivation led them to do things that were not prescribed in the law of Moses. And let me also say that that motivation also became a dual motivation because there were Pharisees who just wanted to be seen for their good works. So it got corrupted over time. And it's interesting, these washings that we're talking about here in our passage, they're rituals that are not actually in the law of Moses at all. There were certain washing rituals that were commanded in the law, but those washings were to be performed by priests before offering sacrifices. The law never states anywhere that people, the people of Israel should wash their hands. Now, the people of Israel did need to wash in certain situations where they had become ceremonially unclean. They needed to wash to become ceremonially clean again. But nowhere in the law are they told to wash their hands or perform any kind of these washings that the Pharisees are, are due here in Mark chapter 7. So what the Pharisees had done is they'd taken these ritual Washington's washings meant for the priests and they applied them to all Israel. And that's what legalism does. It takes a tradition or a personal preference or a personal view and it forces it on everyone else. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it focuses on external behavior. You might think, well, we don't do that today. Really? Don't we though? Let's just play a little game called you might, be, you might have legalistic tendencies if. You ready? You might have legalistic tendencies if you feel smug because you're consistently in God's word. Now, that's a good thing, right? To be in God's word, that's a great thing. That's a necessary thing for our spiritual growth. But if we're smug about it, if we look poorly on someone else who's not consistently in God's word, that's evidence of legalistic thinking. Let's try another one. You might have legalistic tendencies if you believe God is most glorified through your preferred style of music. Music is a hot topic among Christians. It is. And let me just, just say this. I've got my preferred style of music. You've got your preferred style of music. Does God have his? Here's the thing. 
God doesn't give a hoot about the tune, about the beat, or about the style. God is all about the heart behind the song. Is it a heart that longs to worship him or is it a heart that's worshiping something else? Here's a third one. You might have legalistic tendencies if all of your friends have to come from the same denomination. I won't be friends with anybody unless they're a part of XYZ. You know what that is? That reflects a heart that worships that denomination, not a heart that worships God. One more. You might have legalistic tendencies if you completely avoid alcohol, tobacco, makeup, or jewelry out of a fear of contamination. None of these things are wrong in and of themselves. None of these things are wrong if you don't want to partake in them. Can they be used in excess? Can they be abused? Can they become idols? Absolutely. And some of them very easily, and we do need to be careful, but they're not wrong in and of themselves. I could go on, but I'm sure you identify with one or more of these things. What are these things? They're external behaviors. They're things that we choose to do or don't do, and we have the freedom to choose that. But when we choose to do or not partake in some of these things in an effort to get on God's good side, it's become legalistic. When we choose to do or not to do these things and we think that that's the way that everybody else should do it, it's become legalistic. We may not be a Pharisee trying to keep ourselves pure so we can approach God in a temple, but the same principle is true. We are operating out of a fear that if we don't do things just so, God's going to be angry with us. So what am I saying? Don't do external behaviors? Like ever? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that recognize that God is not concerned with your external performance. He is concerned with a heart that loves him. The greatest commandment is Deuteronomy 6, 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Everything we do should be motivated by a heart that loves God. So then my question is, are you striving to obey God because you love him or are you trying to earn his favor? If you're trying to earn his favor, I've got news for you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't do that. As an unbeliever, you can't do that. If you're a believer, you've already got his favor. So repent of trying to earn his favor and just love him. You might think, well, how do I exactly do that? That's a great question. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. Do you want to know how to cultivate a heart that loves God? You sit and you marinate in the truth that God loves you. He loved you before you knew him. When you were reprehensible in his sight, he loved you. Sit and ponder that and see how that truth affects your heart. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it focuses on external behavior. Here's your second point. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it treats man's ideas as if they were God's ideas. It treats man's ideas as if they were God's ideas. Now back to our Pharisees. 
Now that I've given you a lot of background of kind of what's going on in this passage, let's see what happens. They come, they see the disciples are not eating with washed hands. They're defiling themselves. And they come to Jesus. I'm gonna go back to verse five actually and read that again. And the Pharisees asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now it's an interesting that they use the term in verse five, traditions of elders. Did you see that? They're asking Jesus and they use that term, traditions of the elders. They're not saying law of Moses. They're not saying, why do your disciples not walk according to the law of Moses, but according to the traditions of the elders. And again, that term, traditions of the elders, that they were referring to those oral traditions that had been passed down from teacher to student over the course of so many years. Just the fact that they used that term should have been a clue that this isn't right. It's not God's law, it's man's, but they don't get it. Now their question here is about the disciples not washing, but do you wanna know something? That's, that's not the real heart issue. Have you ever had a situation where there was something aggravating your heart, something you were dealing with, something that was under the surface, and then out here, somebody comes and does something mildly irritating, but you just unload on them. And it wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they were doing. It was about what was under the surface. Have you been in a situation like that? That's kind of what's going on here. There's something under the surface of this question. Yes, the disciples were breaking the tradition by not washing hands, but they were already hostile towards Jesus because he had been disregarding their pharisaical traditions. And also, rabbis back in this day were held responsible by, their, by the behavior of their disciples. If you have as a disciple acted unbecomingly, it was a disgrace to your rabbi. So underneath the surface of this question, there's hostility toward Jesus. There's his disciples are behaving in a way that reflects badly on him in their eyes, and they're not happy because he, Jesus, is not following their demands. His disciples are not following their traditions, and that just might contaminate the purity of Israel in the eyes of the Pharisees. So that's where they're coming from, and they say, what's up with this? Your disciples are not washing their hands, and then Jesus says, verse six, he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Now, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He just comes right out, and he calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite, the originally what that word was used for was for play actors, play actors who would wear different masks on stage. They acted hypocritically to who they really were. And that's a good picture of the Pharisees here. The word is used for people here in the text whose worship is merely outward, not from the heart. They're wearing a mask of worship. And that's what Jesus is saying. You have an outward appearance of worship, but it's not genuine. It's not from the heart. Why is it not from the heart? What makes what we do on the outside a reflection of a genuine heart? You ever thought of that? In other words, how do we know our heart is in the right place of worship? The key to that is repentance. 
If we're trying to do right on the outside with no repentance of sin on the inside, it will always be ingenuine, no matter how good it might look. We begin with repentance of our sin and we make that relationship with Jesus right and then what naturally flows out of that is genuine behavior that is worshipful. Jesus calls them hypocrites because there's no repentance. They're just trying to do things without a right heart. And then he quotes Isaiah 29, 13. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, Jesus wasn't saying here that Isaiah was specifically prophesying about the Pharisees in Jesus' day. What he's saying here is that the way Isaiah described the people of Isaiah's day also fits the Pharisees of Jesus' day. In the passage of Isaiah, the people of Israel were acting actually the same way the Pharisees were. They were going through the motions of worship. They were, perform- they were being perfunctory in their service, but there was no heart. And the same was true of the Pharisees. And Jesus says, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is from me. Are there worship services happening? Yes. Are there sacrifices happening? Yes. Are there rituals happening? Yes, but not from a place of repentance, rather from a place of hypocrisy. They're playing a role in an attempt to look holy. I'm gonna read over that part in verse seven again. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Again, the Pharisees were holding on to the oral traditions and even elevating them to the actual truths of God. And the result is vanity. The worship is vain. It's meaningless. It's not received by God because it's not true worship. Here's the big deal. They were treating man's words, their oral traditions, as if they were God's words. And that is an epic fail. God has written a book It's called the Bible, and those are his words. To add to them, to subtract from them, to make anything else equal to them is an epic fail. Now, I think it's highly unlikely that it's your plan this afternoon to go home, pull out your Bible and a pen, and flip to the back and just start writing and adding your own thoughts and your own ideas. I think that's highly unlikely. If that is your plan, we need to have a conversation. But I think that's highly unlikely. However, we can get stuck on our own ideas and ignore what God's word has to say. Let me give you an example of this. Strategy. People use this, churches use this all the time. We come up with strategies. Here's a strategy for reaching young people. Here's a strategy of evangelism. Here's a strategy to grow the congregation. Now, strategy in and of itself is not bad. But when we automatically go to man's ideas of how to accomplish something, rather than first and foremost coming to God's word, we are in danger of elevating those ideas to the level of God's word. When we depend on outside ideas, and not necessarily that they're bad, but when we depend on them, like we should depend on God's word, then we've elevated them to the level of God's word. You know, when Joshua was given the mission by God to conquer the promised land, what did he do? 
Did he gather his generals and plan? Did he calculate the size of the enemy's army and compare them to Israel? Did he have a bunch of weapons made? Did he evaluate the geography and try to come up with a battle plan that would use the land to his advantage? No. He simply trusted in God. What was God's plan? Joshua chapter 6, God said, march around Jericho. Just march around Jericho? Yeah, just march around Jericho. Okay. The city fell. Again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying planning and strategy are wrong things. No, I'm saying when we lean on them more than we lean on the truth of God's word, then we've elevated them. Now, what about your personal life? What could you be trusting in to the level of God's word? Are you trusting in your education? Are you trusting in the principles that your parents used to raise you and you're using those principles to raise your children? Are you more loyal to some idea or some principle rather than being loyal to God's truth? Let me encourage you, pray that one through. We all have those blinders where we're leaning on things and trusting in things rather than trusting in God's word or elevating those things to the level of God's word. Legalism is an epic fail. Lastly, legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it hurts people. Quite plainly, quite simply, it hurts people. Jesus continues to address the Pharisees. He goes on to say in verse nine, and he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you will have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's actually just giving them an example of how they have elevated their oral traditions to God's word. He says that you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God, and the NASB actually translates that in verse nine. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. The Pharisees had become experts at doing this. They'd spent their lives trying not to break the law by creating all kinds of extra rules and traditions that weren't in the law. And Jesus points that out and he gives them this example. Look at verse 10. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now that's a reference to the fifth commandment. In Exodus 20, when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments, and you're probably familiar with those. Honor your father and mother. Now, God wanted Israel and us by extension to show high regard for parents. It's an attitude of honor and respect that children, both young and grown, are to show to their parents. To not honor one's parents was punishable by death in the Old Testament. You might think that's pretty extreme, but that was the degree of importance that God wanted to impress upon Israel, do this. And that's why, and that's what the law states. But then Jesus points out how the Pharisees are actually contradicting this law by following their oral traditions. He says in verse 11, you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Now let me 
dissect this a little bit. Corbin is a term that means consecrated as a gift for God and closed to ordinary human use. It's something that's been set aside as a gift to God. It could be money. It could be material goods. It could be a piece of land. It's been pledged to the Lord. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But what was happening is that parents, those who were supposed to be honored, were not getting, were not being provided for. So give an example. A son who was responsible for caring for his parents, a grown son, was expected to provide some kind of, of, of something for his aging parents, perhaps a place to live, perhaps some money to live on, or something to that effect. But if the son declared that wealth to be Corbin, if he dedicated it to God, then he didn't have to use it to care for his parents. And by the way, there, to declare something Corbin didn't mean that it necessarily went to God right away. It was a pledge. It was eventually supposed to go to God, but the son could still benefit from it. So you can see what they've actually done here is they've taken away what should have been honoring to parents, protecting parents, providing for parents, and created a loophole for the son to be able to do what he wanted with it. And Jesus is saying that you're using this tradition as a way to undermine the actual written law of God. And he goes on in verse 13 to say, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. He said this is only an example. This is only one way that you are undermining God's word for your traditions. The true intent of God's word had been lost in favor of practicing the oral traditions. And Jesus says, you do this in many ways. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is using this issue of Corban as an example of how the Pharisees are misrepresenting God's word. But within that example, we see another principle about legalism. Legalism hurts people. Who were getting hurt in that example? The parents. It harms us. It harms others. When we practice legalism, it's harmful. It's spiritually harmful. It's emotionally harmful. Even at times, it can be physically harmful, as the case that Jesus presents here. Legalism is a spiritual epic fail because it hurts. It hurts people. It locks them in a cage, so to speak. They're not set free. We're not set free like the gospel is supposed to do. And we can do this to ourselves and we can do this to others. We can heap laws and traditions and preferences on ourselves and others and set ourselves up in a cage that is hurtful. In an article by C.J. Mahaney called Breaking the Rules of Legalism, he explains that what happens here is that we confuse justification and sanctification see justification is God's finished work it's God's finished work in our lives sanctification is the ongoing work of God in our lives justification refers to our standing before God we are declared righteous sanctification is being continually made righteous by being conformed to the image of Christ justification is objective Christ's work for us it's done sanctification is subjective the work that Christ does within us and see why the why am I bringing all this up because when we confuse the two when we think 
like our spiritual disciplines are necessary for our justification, then that's when we're hurting ourselves. That's when we're hurting others. And nothing could be further from the truth. When you place your faith in Christ, you are justified in God's sight. You can't be more loved. You can't be more accepted than you already are. No spiritual discipline will enhance God's love for you. And to believe otherwise is a trap. It will hurt you. If you believe that your spiritual disciplines, your Bible reading, your prayer, your evangelism, all the things that we try to do as Christians, if you believe that you do those things to make yourself pleasing to God, then it's gonna lead to one of two results. One, you'll be prideful because you think you've got all your ducks in a row. Or two, you'll feel guilty because you just can't keep up with it all. And neither is right. You're hurting yourself. And it's also hurtful when we take our own traditions, our own personal preferences, our own personal views, and we force them on another. When we say things like, you should read God's word this way. You should believe in this view about the end times. You should dress like this. You should do this. You should fill in the blank. It's taking our own personal convictions and thrusting them on another when God's word is not clear on that. What should we do instead? We should rely on God's word and God's word alone. And we should rely on the work the Holy Spirit is doing in our life and in the lives of other people. You know, the Holy Spirit is always working in the lives of his people. He just might be working in a way that looks different to you in someone else. He might be using something in someone else's life to grow them that he's not gonna use in your life. Should we be offended by that? No, we should rejoice in that. Legalism, this is why it's an epic fail. It focuses on external behavior. It treats man's ideas as if they were God's ideas and it hurts people. Now let me give you a warning. Sometimes we can come in and we can hear a sermon like this and we can take this idea of legalism and we can move the complete opposite direction. We can fear legalism to the point that we fail to practice spiritual disciplines at all. Take reading God's word, for example. Suppose that you are in a habit of every day waking up and reading God's word, but one day you wake up and you're just not feeling it. And you think to yourself, you know, if I force this, it's just gonna be legalistic. So maybe I shouldn't. Reading God's word, like any spiritual discipline, can become legalistic, yes, but you see, when we view that activity as something that we do as an effort to please God, that's when it's legalistic. On the contrary, ignoring our spiritual disciplines out of a fear of making them legalistic will rob us of the benefits of having those routines in our lives. When we don't feel like being in God's word, that's probably when we should be in God's word the most. It's not a reason to avoid it out of a fear of legalism. I read an article this week entitled Lay Aside the Fear of Legalism by a woman named Sarah Walton. She's a contributor to the Desiring God uh, website and she writes this. Legalism stems from putting confidence in our own efforts and abilities producing pride and self-righteousness. 
Discipline, on the other hand, recognizes that we are already fully accepted by God through faith alone and that we need to depend on the power of the Spirit and exert effort to strive toward holiness, producing freedom and joy as we grow in godliness. Such discipline reflects a heart that is living wisely now in light of our security in Christ and the imperishable reward that is to come. Yes, we need to avoid operating from a heart of legalism, but we need to be aware of not being paralyzed in our spiritual walk from a fear of legalism. You might say, wow, that's a thin line. I know. How do we do that? How do we walk this line? How do we walk the line of being spiritually disciplined without being legalistic? Well, do you know why Ultimately, I've given you three reasons why legalism is an epic fail, but do you know why it's ultimately an epic fail? Because it doesn't work. Trying to reach God through legalistic means does not work. You can't be saved by following a strict list of do's and don'ts. You can't. You can't be good enough for Jesus to accept you you have to be humble enough to come to him for the help that he offers you. And have you done that? Have you humbled yourself to the point where you came to him, turned from your sin, and embraced him by faith? If you have not done that, would you come talk to me after church this morning? I'd just love to share more with you on that. But for those of us in this room who have received Christ, what do we do with a sermon like this? You know, maybe you came to faith in Christ recognizing that it's nothing I can do. Like, I understand the whole legalism. I can't earn my salvation. But we can so easily fall into a spirit of legalism in our day-to-day Christian life. We can so easily fall into an idea that I have to be good to keep God happy with me and nothing could be further from the truth. So what we need to do is this. We need to see what the Pharisees failed to see. We need to see what the law was really all about. Rather, let me say it this way. We need to understand who the law was all about. It wasn't about all the sacrifices, all the washings, all the religious rituals. All of those things were not meant to be kept as a way to make people righteous. They were things meant to point to a man who came to be righteousness for us. We need to understand that the reason we can do nothing to please God is because his son already did everything there was to do. Jesus already fulfilled the law completely, totally, perfectly he did it all he was the one with whom the father said he was well pleased and we need to recognize that any effort we make to make ourselves acceptable to God is an epic fail because by the blood of Jesus we are already accepted we are already loved We are already made righteous. We need to fix our gaze on Christ, accept his righteousness on our behalf. Only then will our worship not merely be external, but from the heart. Only then will God's word reign supreme in our lives. Only then will our lives be edifying to those around us. So church, fix your eyes on Christ.
Let's pray. Lord, you are righteous. You are the only one who's righteous. The work that you did during your time here on earth is enough to make us righteous. We need not seek a righteousness of our own. We need not establish our own set of rules because you already accomplished it all. We praise you for your work and we pray that you will help us recognize the legalistic bents in our own hearts. Help us to see where we turn to our own work and fail to rely on yours. Grow us more and more in that love relationship with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Harvest, will you stand as we sing our closing song?